0: I invite you to turn again to the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, we pick up where we left off last time at verse 23. Verse 23, we'll read into chapter 3 and verse 6. You might remember I said last time there were five stories put, piled together here by Mark. We looked at the first three And today we look at the last two, and you'll see very quickly they are very closely related. They are episodes four and five in a series of five. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, one Sabbath He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And he again entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Well, you will remember there is not one hint of human opposition to Jesus and his ministry in Mark chapter 1. Jesus receives only and all five-star reviews. But by chapter 2 and here into chapter 3, Mark strings together these five events, all of which have Jesus doing and saying things that earn him responses of skepticism and then criticism and then condemnation from the religious leaders of the day. First, he is criticized for saying to a man that his sins are forgiven him, which only God can do. But then he heals a man. Then he's criticized for attending a party with unclean and unwashed, undesirables, publicly known sinners, and he claims it is the sick and not the well who need a doctor, and he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then he is attacked because his disciples are not fasting. And he claims to be the bridegroom, and he claims to be bringing joy to his disciples, not sadness. And he lets the Pharisees and the scribes know their old ways of keeping the law will not mesh with his new ways he has come to bring. And in each case, and in the two stories that follow today, there's this growing, more obvious, evident contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders, it was their role to study the law, to apply the law, to even enforce the law of God. And they did that for, and on behalf of the average Jew, they were the law keepers and the law enforcers. It was they who set the standards for how one should live in order to rightly honor God. And Jesus comes and has something to say about their standards and about his role as the supreme law giver and the ultimate law keeper. Jesus will be the interpreter In other words, though, what Jesus says and does are all challenges to the status quo of the religious order. And that's no more evident than it is today in these two stories that have to do with Sabbath observance. In the first, he and his disciples are walking through a grain field, his disciples are stripping some of the heads of grain, and we assume they are rubbing them together and eating the product. And that looks to the Pharisees like a kind of harvesting, a violation of God's law not to work on the Sabbath. In the second story, Jesus is in the synagogue, also on the Sabbath. There just happens to be in the crowd a man with a withered hand, and and the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see what He will do. We are told they're doing that with a goal of accusing Him. Now, I imagine Jesus could have said to that man, meet me out back after the service is over, or swing by the house tomorrow. Let's not do it in front of these guys, and, uh, or maybe simply, you can wait one more day, can't you? But he doesn't. And at the end of these two stories, told back to back as they are, notice the religious leaders are so infuriated. They will conspire, the religious leaders on the far right, as it were, will conspire with those on the far left, Jews who sympathize with the Romans in a plot to kill Jesus. And again, it's worth asking this question as we're here through uh, only two chapters of of Mark. How is it possible or what in the world is happening? What makes these religious leaders so angry that we have gone from only all the time five-star reviews to a plan to kill Jesus? Or another way to ask this question is this, what is Jesus doing and saying here specifically? How is he violating the established expectations and applications of Sabbath law? How is he breaking what people believe to be what one can or cannot do to the point where the religious authorities are planning to kill him? And this is more than just an academic or kind of theological question for us in the Gospel of Mark because Sunday comes around for you every week. Every seven days you give thought to how you and or your family will mark and observe this day. What will you do or not do on this day as we honor the Lord? And so that's a bigger question I want to ask for you, and that's where I want to land ultimately. But the only way to really do that, I realize, is to actually go all the way back to the beginning. We need to go back and do a survey of the Old Testament to see what God has to say about the Sabbath laws and to see why this becomes a point of contention between Jesus and the Jewish lawyers. The world record for skipping stones across water is held by a man named Kurt Steiner who back in 2013 threw a stone along the surface of the Allegheny River that skipped 88 times. This morning, I want to skip the flat stone of the Sabbath day question across the smooth surface of the Old Testament but it will only skip about three or four times. I trust you realize there's so much more that can be said that I will not say today, and I do want to get us to land back in the Gospel of Mark. But we'll have this stone skip and hit the water at creation, at Mount Sinai, in Jerusalem under David and Solomon, and then... Jesus before we get to us. So first come with me back to the book of Genesis. Before we even get to the Sabbath more narrowly, notice it is embedded into the very fabric of what God did in His act of creation. God worked for six days. He created everything out of nothing. And what was He doing? He was subduing and ruling and bringing order to the chaos, and then He was creating and filling the world He was making. And at the end of each day, we're told that He saw what He had made and it was good. And there was morning and evening and the next day. He ends the sixth day with the creation of man, male and female made in His image. And so even before sin enters into the world, we have the Lord God blessing them, creating them, blessing them, placing them in a garden He's built for them, a kind of garden temple, and He gives them the same basic job He had performed for those six days. That is, they're to maintain order and peace, they're to exercise dominion over the earth, and they're to fill it and subdue it. They are to, in other words, extend the blessings God gives them in the garden to the whole earth. They're to populate the whole earth with image bearers. Made in the image of God, who are also made in their image, who will worship God and have fellowship and and communion with Him in this world He has made for them to enjoy forever. So we get this finally in Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set it apart. It's different from all the others. Because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Again, just notice this, that embedded into this life He is making and this world He is creating, there is this principle of six days of work and one day of rest, and that we're to observe and follow as those made in the image of God. We're to do what God did in our work in creation, in our resting after our work. And so we were created, again, get this, it's all before the fall, before sin enters into the world. We are created to do six days of honorable, meaningful, creative, productive work. There's value in that. It's what you were made for. Mastering, ordering, filling, reorganizing this creation. We recognize it's all the more difficult now post-fall, but the work was given before sin entered the world. And all that is to be followed by one day of resting and being refreshed. Well, let's move on from there to Mount Sinai. When the Lord, through Moses, sets about to rescue His people from Egypt, He is fulfilling promises He's made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's gonna make them into a great nation. He's going to give them a land. And notice in this epic and prototypical act of salvation, he delivers his people from an endless, unrelenting, uninterrupted life of work, also called slavery. The Israelites were valuable to the Egyptians only because of their productivity. And God tells Moses he wants to gather his great nation into the wilderness so that they can worship him. He's going to consecrate them or set them apart as a nation. He's going to distinguish them from all the other nations, which he has already done because he said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. That dwelling, of course, is expressed in the tabernacle to be built the ways they identify as God's people by God's direction and command is through a whole series of conduct and ways of living laws. They have festivals and feasts and sacrifices and customs and rules and practices. That's what the books of Exodus Leviticus are about. If you read them, you'll think this is incredibly tedious and detailed, but that's kind of the point. They are to have a unique relationship with God, and they are to live in distinction from all the other nations. They're to be noticed for their difference. And everything they learn at Mount Sinai, including the plans for the building of the tabernacle, they're to take with them. The Lord will lead them and he's going to lead them into the land of promise, which he tells them is also going to be what? A land of rest. The land of promise is going to be a kind of new garden, a new Eden, a new hospitable environment in which they will enjoy peace and prosperity and productivity. They will be free from enemies that the Lord will drive out before them. They will have a place of peace and rest. And what will they do? They will need to keep reorganizing and pushing back enemies who come in, and they will need to fill the earth with children and grandchildren and generations of descendants. And again, God will be with them. He will, they will be His people. He will be their God. God. And all this they do with a renewed, regular, repeated cycle of work and rest, celebrating feasts and and festivals on various special Sabbaths. And so the Lord, when He gives the commands to honor the Sabbath, we find those in two places. And it's worth noting there are two different reasons attached to that command. First in Exodus 20, in six days, well, back to the command itself, you are to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord, Yahweh, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, maid servant, female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then here are the two reasons. First, in Exodus chapter 20, the reason is rooted in God's work of creation, or God's act of resting after working. Exodus 20, "...for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." But when you get to Deuteronomy 5 and the restating of the law, the Sabbath law, virtually the same in terms of who can or should not be working on the six days and not on the seventh, that law is rooted, the reason is rooted in God's act of redemption. Exodus 20, it's in creation. Deuteronomy 5, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and so on. You shall remember, he says, that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh commands you to keep the Sabbath. That is, while the people were to enter the land of rest, and they were to work that land and maintain it and advance God's causes there, they were to remember there was a time they lived in perpetual slavery where they were useful only because of their productivity. God rescued them from that, and He promised they would enjoy rest. And all this, Yahweh says, Exodus 31 is a sign, the Sabbath is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you, set you apart. Again, observing the Sabbath as it was intended for the Israelites was to sanctify, set them apart, distinguish them from every other nation. They were to imitate God in His work of creation, six days and one day of rest. And they were to thank God and celebrate God for His great act of deliverance from their years of slavery, without rest. And so what follows on Mount Sinai is Yahweh giving to Moses a whole layer of laws about how the Sabbath and everything else was to be observed, what they would look like in their lives that would distinguish them from every other nation. For example, while they were in the wilderness... I think you remember this. God Himself observed a Sabbath with respect to manna. He didn't send manna on the Sabbath. And He was teaching His people to observe the Sabbath by not expecting manna on that day. God's people are forbidden from kindling a fire in their house. They are to bring special additional sacrifices on the Sabbath. There's a man, a story of a man who gets caught picking up sticks on the sabbath and he is brought before the priests who seek the counsel and will of the lord and the lord says to him by to them in very clear unequivocal language that man is to be stoned to death for his violation of the sabbath now ask yourself this are the pharisees being overly scrupulous about the Sabbath day observance, apparently. But are the Pharisees also concerned that people honor the Lord and get nowhere near that commandment not to violate the Sabbath? You see, now Mark 2 and 3 start to make a little more sense to us. But first let's make a quick stop off at the Kingdom of Jerusalem under Solomon and David. You remember Solomon built a temple. And he says, as he sets out, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of Yahweh, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until Yahweh put them under the soles of his feet. What happened? David comes into the land, he's the king, and there are still enemies all over the place. And his job, like Adam's would have been, was to defeat, destroy, and expel the enemies, expand, secure the borders. That's what David does. And Solomon comes finally and says, Since David, my father, was marked by war, since he spent his time defeating and dispossessing the nations that occupied the land, since he expanded the borders, since he finally earned for the land rest, now finally I can build a house where Yahweh can settle in. He says, now Yahweh, my God, has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. It sounds almost Edenic. And so he says, I intend to build a house for the name of Yahweh, my God. And as Yahweh said to my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Solomon builds a house. He dedicates that temple. The priests bring the Ark of the Covenant into it. And when they leave, the glory of God in a cloud comes and settles in that place where Yahweh shows up, takes residence among His people. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will dwell with you. And I will give you rest. Solomon responds with this, blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to His people Israel according to all that he has promised. And so you have this, you have God creating, working for six days, taking an open-ended day of rest without morning or evening, a rest that continues and anticipates a rest yet to come. You have God redeeming his people from this life of hard work and slavery and bringing them into a land of rest, creating them as worshipers, bringing them back into a land He had long promised to them, a land where they would have deep and abiding rest even as they were able to enjoy lives of work and productivity. And finally, we get to Jesus in Mark chapter 2. Jesus and His disciples are walking through a grain field. His disciples pick a couple of years of grain. Jesus heals a man's hand on a Sabbath. In both cases, he is challenged by the Pharisees. It is their role to study the law, apply the law to the variety of life circumstances, to enforce the law. They are the experts, they are the authorities on what was and what wasn't the proper way to keep the law. We know from other places in scriptures they had built up layers of laws, primarily, again, out of a concern God's people not getting too near that law to break it. And they, as Jesus says elsewhere, lay burdens of performance on God's people that they're not able to bear, which makes... Matthew chapter 11, 28, even the richer. Come to me, my burden is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But there is a lot more going on in this story than simply Jesus moving the goalposts a few yards into the end zone or a little, if you would, to the left to make the observing the law easier. There's more to the story than simply criticizing the Pharisees, which it seems easy to do for us, for being overly scrupulous. Jesus doesn't come simply to strip away a few layers of law to make it easier for us to perform. He came to fulfill the law. And He came to transform our understanding of who He is with respect to the law. It's interesting, isn't it, that he cites the story of David on the run from Saul in desperation, asking for receiving and eating the bread reserved for the priests, which was put there on the Sabbath. And there's a sense in which David uh, is, is appealing to an authority that he doesn't yet have because he's not yet recognized as king. Not unlike Jesus in this moment. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he means at least this, he stands before them as the Son of God who was present at creation when the pattern of 6 and 1 was developed in the first place. And he, not any of the Pharisees, is a better judge of what the law actually means and for what purpose it was actually given. It was not given to provide endless burdens. It was given to demonstrate God's love for concern in His people and in their life. The Son of Man who came to seek and save, the lost, who has the power to forgive sins and to restore the wholeness of life, is also doing this. He's expanding the kingdom of God back to and beyond the original intent. That is, the kingdom of God will cover the whole earth. And that means Jesus is doing a couple of things here. The specific expressions of the Sabbath law given to God's people at Mount Sinai are being either fulfilled by Christ or they're being abolished with the state of Israel as God had designed it, because now Jesus is coming, has come, and is saying, this is for everyone. Jesus is the new temple, the God who dwells with us. He is the second and successful Adam who restores order to creation, who crushes the head of the serpent underfoot, As Adam should have done but did not. He is the God who delivers from slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to performance. He gains rest for his people in his death and resurrection. He has entered that rest already now ahead of us in his ascension. He is going to receive us into that rest that still awaits for us. And he is at present by his spirit through the proclamation of the gospel, filling this whole world with people made in his image who will worship him. Jesus even fulfills the sacrifices we sometimes appeal to, those morning and evening sacrifices that set as a model a morning and evening worship service on a Sunday here. He fulfills that, those sacrifices uh, sacrifices as well. Jesus strips away so much of what God himself had given to identify to mark off the Israelites as a unique nation, his nation, how they should live, and how they especially in this case should observe the Sabbath. He strips that away, fulfills it, says it points to me, and it no longer applies because the Gospels go into the whole world. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I actually get to tell you how the Sabbath is to be observed. That's what angers the the Pharisees especially. Who does this man think he is? That he can reinterpret the law. Even do things that look to us like they are violations of the law. You all want to know what this means for you today, though, don't you? You will not hear me try to extract from Mark chapter 2 and 3 a series or a list of do's and don'ts of what you can and can't or should or shouldn't do on the Lord's Day. That would be, I think, the temptation to fall back into the pattern of the Pharisees. But if you're wondering... Note this. This is a day to rest from your usual work. That is rooted in creation. That doesn't change. You do that in imitation of God, our Creator. And this is also a day to gather with God's people in joyful celebration of Jesus Christ who has earned and who, ha- who gives and who has entered into the rest he has achieved for himself and for you. That is, this is a day where we celebrate Christ's redemption. We honor the Sabbath in in its own way with respect to what God did at creation. We celebrate on this day what God has done in redemption. And one more thing that redemption comes in two stages. It has already come in Christ. There's still something in store for you. This day, today, now Sunday, not the Sabbath, I could say lots about that transition, but it's particularly to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, his victory over sin and Satan, his reordering reordering and reorganizing the kingdom of God, including you, Many of you, most of you, not Jews by birth, but who have been brought into this kingdom. And he says, set this apart, because that's how I made the world. Gather on this day to worship and celebrate, because that's when I saved you. And because there's still something future, a rest still awaits the people of God, Hebrews says. This is a day that serves as a sign It's a sign of the rest that awaits God's people. Already secure in heaven for you. Already being enjoyed by Jesus for you. And as you're united to Him, enjoy this day. This is a good day. And enjoy the rest you will enjoy when it is revealed to you in Christ at the last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a way to wander and meander through your word to get to a place where we begin to understand something of the magnificent work of Jesus for us and for our salvation. Thank you that you give purpose to us during the week when we work, that we serve you and honor you and do the very thing you made us for. Thank you that we begin our week now with a celebration of Jesus Christ and His victory and His resurrection over sin and Satan, for His reordering of Your created world, for His renewing us after His image, for gathering and assembling a multitude of people from around the globe on a day to worship You. And thank You for the token of rest this is for us as we look forward to His return. Receive our thanks for all of this. Reinforce the truth in our hearts that we might honor You in all of our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, Amen.